0: Hello everyone and welcome back to series six of The Public Eye, a six part series of podcasts brought to you by Granite Exchange. I'm your host Sarah Travers and throughout this series I have the great honour of speaking with local entrepreneurs and business owners to learn more about how their companies have come to be, to gain insight into their growth and find out how they continue to innovate. So, wherever you get your podcasts from, remember to keep an eye out for all new episodes and subscribe to stay up to date. Well, today I am very excited to be joined by Donal Farrell, a master distiller and blender at Mourn Dew Distillery. Donal, you're very welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you in the studio. But before we begin, I'm going to give everyone a little bit of background on Mourn Dew, though I'm sure you will put some meat on the bones for us in a few seconds time. So Mourn Dew Distillery is the first legal distillery to operate in the Mourns for many centuries. They are the inheritor of a distilling tradition that has endured through the tumultuous history of this great island from the high tables of clergy with drinks replete with exotic concoctions of luxurious ingredients reminiscent of a modern style gin to the open hearth of the humblest cotier where recipes for homemade potchin using whatever ingredients their little farms could offer were passed from father to son. And indeed it is a father and son that runs this wonderful business now but uh, Father Donal is uh, here to talk to us today. Donal, uh, let's start from the beginning. You weren't always running a distillery. Uh,
1: That's right, Sarah. Uh, For many years, I was a practicing chartered accountant and for many more years, I am a practicing barrister. Um, So the move into the distillation business uh, was rather left field, to to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. Um, It came about... Because several years well many years ago now, I was involved in a court case, and the court case and in- involved DNA evidence, which was using a method of extraction called cold distillation slash uh, vacuum distillation. One goes with the other. Uh, when you put a, when you put liquid in a vacuum, it boils at very low temperatures, and I realised at that stage that, that had huge potential for cooking, because I'm an amateur cook I suppose, and it also had potential for distillation Uh, the eureka moment on the distillation didn't happen for until some time later when I was speaking to an old gentleman who now sings with the Choir Celestial Uh, he passed on many years ago but he was making potching and I started talking to him about this distillation technique that I had seen and he was fascinated by it but he thought we, well, he was too old to pursue it and it, it was too technical for him and one thing led to another I spoke to different people about it and it, I decided uh, along with Donal and a friend of mine uh, Noel Mills who has since retired from the business and also a chemist so he was able to input his technical knowledge, uh, we decided to have a go at creating an unusual type of distillery whereby we combine conventional distillation and vacuum distillation So over the years we've built up a corpus of knowledge on vacuum distillation techniques and methodologies and we've refined the still designs uh, to the extent that we're now producing fairly unique products from fairly unique stills.
0: Wow. <laughs> that is the most interesting explainer of why a business uh, started, I think, that we've had <laughs> on the Public Eye podcast. I don't even know where to go with that. I'm thinking, what happened to the DNA evidence in the court case <laughs> in, in that particular? Yeah, what
1: well, 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 the DNA, uh, as you probably know, is a very, very large, complex molecule. Yeah. And the importance of the vacuum distillation process is that it, ex- it extracts the DNA without damaging it. So if you bring that over to food flavour molecules and think of an orange molecule in 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 an orange, in a fruit, and you distill the orange juice and alcohol, if you distill it in a conventional still, you'll get marmalade flavours. If you distill it in a vacuum still with cold distillation, you'll get fresh orange flavoured alcohol. So if you apply that across a range of botanicals, you, you can see how the flavour profiles that we would get from different botanicals, let's say rose petals, would be completely different from conventional methods. So if, if, if you if you subject a rose petal to conventional distillation, you get something like a stewed tea bag flavour. But when you do it through a vacuum still, where we run a 2% of atmospheric pressure and condense at minus 40 centigrade, you get this really delicate, delightful rose-flavoured uh tincture and, um, and that's that's what goes into our drinks
0: feeling so thirsty at <laughs> the thought of all those gorgeous yeah. flavors that you've talked about and that's just absolutely fascinating and where does it d- date back to i mean obviously this is an ancient um tradition and this vacuum form of distilling but you know who, who discovered it where did you find that it came from
1: yeah well uh, well vacuum distilling is a pretty recent mm, phenomenon yes. in, in terms of uh, it's use it's it, it's used in forensic laboratories so uh, if you go to psni forensic laboratory you'll see vacuum stills on desktops um ours are slightly larger than that in that they're in, industrial uh, stills standing in a couple of uh stories high, maybe not a couple of stories high, but certainly th- the, the fall of a warehouse. Um, s- distillation itself mm. is a much older story than that. Um, distillation uh, classically came from the Arabs. Uh, even the word alcohol is an Arabic word, um, and that's, th- that, that's the root of that word. Goodness. But... Before that, the Irish were doing something similar to distillation. There is a book held in the Diocese of Ossery down in County Kilkenny, Church of Ireland Diocese, called the Red Book of Ossery, and it was compiled, put together in the 14th and 15th centuries. There's a document in that book going back to the 7th century, and it contains a recipe for a distilled spirit, and most of the ingredients would have come from the Middle East. So it would have been an incredibly expensive spirit to be making. And the only people who could have made it would have been the aristocrats who would have had the money or the monasteries who also would have had a lot of money gathered over the centuries. And that then brings you to a stage where all the knowledge of distillation in Ireland was really kept in the clergy. But then along comes Henry VIII, Mm. and in 1536, as I'm sure you remember, 1536 (laughs) to 1541, Henry VIII fell out with the powers that be in Rome Mm -hmm. and dissolved the monasteries and Mm -hmm. captured their wealth. So what happened in Ireland from about 1541 onwards is that all the monks were kicked out on the road. The only way they could make a living, a lot of them, was to actually sell their distillation services. So in a generation, the knowledge of distillation passed from clergy to laity and distillation as a method of producing something that was pleasant and something that was commercially worthwhile became endemic in our society from that point on.
0: And something that was potent as well. Very potent, yeah. Wow, and and the tradition of distilling as well. Uh, we're sitting in Granite Exchange here in the heart of Newry. Um, you know, we're very close to the beautiful Mourne Mountains here. But there's a there's a massive history of, of distilling in this area, and it's really had something of a revival. You're part of that,
1: yes. Um, funny, my, my, one of my grandfathers was born a long time ago, shortly after the famine, and he di- he died in 1923. So obviously, <laughs> I never met him, but. Um, when I was a child back in the sixties, I used to hear stories of of a time long gone and used to hear stories about dis- distillers and punching makers and they're they're really stories of lore now uh I thought they had sort of passed into my memory but when this opportunity started to take shape um it sort of it brought things back to me uh that, that I remembered hearing d- d- decades ago and Um, it, it was part of the motivation to actually make this project live.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Granite Legal Services, a niche business and immigration law practice located in the heart of Newry City. Granite Legal Services provides legal advice to both individuals and companies alike across a wide range of industries, from employment, commercial or corporate law matters to immigration law. Granite Legal Services focuses on providing legally sound, practical advice to its clients. To get in touch, visit www.granitelegalservices.co.uk or contact 028 3026 2200. So let's talk about the, the project going live. Let's talk about the moment that you decided... I'm going to give this a go. I am leaving the bar. I'm leaving the courtroom. I'm leaving that behind me and I'm going to go into that. Or was there an overlap?
1: Oh, there's definitely an overlap. Yeah. Um, the main boots on the ground uh, for a long time would have been Noel Mills, um, who's now kicking his heels up because he's uh, retired. He's hit <laughs> 70 <laughs> now. And Donald Junior, Donald Log, uh, who Yeah, who would sort of He's in the distillery at the moment, working away, um, and he, he would be the boots on the ground. We, we have other staff now as well that have come in, um, so the initial efforts that I put in have really sort of taken shape and been rewarded. I tend to take a back seat now for different reasons. So um, uh, the, the 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 mantle is almost passed; that the torch is practically passed from me to the next generation, even at this stage.
0: And tell me about Dew. then, for those of us who who don't know. I'm not a whiskey drinker, I'm not a gin drinker, but you have lots of lovely delights on offer, lots of products. Tell us, talk us through them.
1: Well, our gins, which were our first products, um, are made by vacuum distillation. So they're very fresh flavoured, very easy to drink. Um, They are fundamentally different from a lot of gins in the market in that we try to make ours gins with as much oil in them as possible. Uh, the oil is not visible to the eye uh, unless it, you put it in a freezer and it goes cloudy. You see the oil precipitating out of the out, out of the ethanol. Um, the purpose of the oil—it's very very light oil. It's a type of ester—is uh, to make it smooth on the tongue on the palate. Um, it's what um, distillers and blenders would refer to the has organoleptic properties so so when you put something in your mouth and it as well as tasting nice it feels nice Oh, okay. you know it it's feel got mouthfeel right. yeah um, so so let's say you put one of the well-known uh, brands of gin in your mouth and <laughs> yes. it tastes quite severe and astringent mm-hmm. and you really don't want it on its own you want it with a mixer um, y- you try one of our gins even though it's significantly stronger y- you'll Drink it, and you say, "Yeah, actually, that's, that's, that's actually very smooth. That, that's that's easy to drink." So, would so you say
0: you don't need a mixer with yours?
1: We would say you don't. You don't need a mixer. Mm-hmm. Um, you can drink it quite easily on its own uh, or over rocks, or, 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 over ice. ice, and um, th- that that's intentional. The inspiration for that was from uh, reading about George Clooney, the actor, some years ago. He was involved in a tequila distillery, and they focused on making a tequila with these same sort of properties where instead of having to knock it back quickly you could sip it slowly and savor it and i thought well there's no reason we can't do that with uh, our gin and the the properties of the distillation process allow us to do that
0: so it sounds to me like you're somebody who, if you're going to do something, you're doing it right, and there's an awful lot of research and science that has yeah. gone into getting this product right. And you know, you are a master distiller and a blender, but well, you're you actually being
1: very kind by calling me a master distiller. Are you not? I'm, I'm self-taught in the, oh, okay. <laughs> in the distillery end of it. Well, it sounds uh, like you know
0: what you're talking about, so <laughs> you've impressed me. But um, you know, how do you how do you how do you do all of the research? How do you get it just right? How do you make sure that what you're telling me, what you're telling your customers is, is absolutely gospel.
1: Well, you have to research. You have to read. And you have to know what you're reading. Um, in terms of developing the products, um, we went through a lengthy trial and error phase. And there was really a stage where I didn't know what it was doing. Um, but I soon found out when it did something that was wrong, I will not do that again. Um, So you build up a corpus of knowledge from that. uh, In our case, we built up a library of flavours from a whole range of botanicals that are just that a library for us. So we have them sitting on shelves. We have different types of flavours. One that's really, really interesting um, is nettle. We've made a beautiful nettle alcohol.
0: Gosh.
1: And when you drink it, it's almost like a nettle sting on the tongue. I know that sounds unpleasant <laughs> but it's actually, it's actually tickle, warm and tickly and you get this mild endorphin kick after the nettle passes away in about two seconds and we, we've, we've tried it on people who are visiting the distillery and everybody loves it and they say yeah how are we going to get that out? I say, well we just haven't got around to it yet. Oh,
0: what are you going to call that one?
1: No idea, <laughs> <laughs> something to do with nettles.
0: That's fascinating too. Honestly, this is so interesting. And I just wish we would we had a little tasting yeah. you could yeah, pass yeah, well, those over to me and I could yeah, just get yeah, stung I, I, on the tongue. <laughs> and all of that. So you have forgotten bring something with me. Yeah, I know. Honestly, you're not allowed in the studio without something nice for me to try. But um the Kilbrony and the Rustrever, um, very popular products that you have on the shelves, would they be your uh, bestsellers?
1: To date yes, they have been our best sellers. Um, but our other products are p- catching up. Um, we're, we're starting to export our whiskies and our whiskies are going, going abroad. Uh, we have big hopes for export markets for those more so than our gins. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so tell me about the, the, the making of whiskey. Obviously it takes a while till you can start producing your own or you, you start blending, do you first of all? and then have you actually got, are you distilling your?
1: No, at, at the moment, we get the new make spirit made for us. We then take it and cask it, yeah. and we cask it in a range of different types of cask. Mm-hmm. So we would use bourbon casks. We would use virgin oak casks. Uh, we would use uh, rye casks. And um, we, would make, we, we would have different types of spirit. We would have um, what they call grain spirit, which is made from unmalted. Barley, or on f- some from wheat, uh, we would have malted barley and spirit, and we would have peated malted barley, um, which would which is a smoky flavour. And those different blends that we, ha- or th- those different individual whiskies that we have, we blend them to get the finished product that goes into the bottle. Um, so and. In our two whiskies, we have another whisky coming out later this year. In our two whiskies to date, the, the blends are actually quite specific. One, we have blended to try and suit the widest range of palate. So in other words, if you were a whisky mm-hmm. beginner, mm-hmm. that whisky is the sort of whisky that you'd probably like because it's not, not offensive in any way. There's no sort of niche flavours that you would think, oh no, I'm not ready for that. Mm-hmm. The second whiskey, which is a single malt, is blended purely and sp- only to my taste. Um, so it's I've taken all the flavors that I like in a whiskey, right. and that's the single malt. Um, and I've certainly noticed. That? I've noticed that mm, younger whiskey drinkers aren't dying about it, but older older people are very partial to it. Um, ah. The 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 flavors that you'll get in a whiskey, you'll get sort of fruity flavors. So there'll be sort of be redolent of uh, oranges and raisins and s- apples and that type of uh, fruit. You'll get floral, you know, like hay or a smell of a greenhouse. So you might get that off a of whiskey. Um, peat, the peaty, in the case of peaty whiskies, it's it's a smoky, med- almost medicinal flavor, um, which is definitely an acquired taste. Uh, and then, of course, you get sort of vanilla flavors and honey and caramel. The, a very important molecule in whiskey is a molecule called uh, gyacol. And gyacol actually, gyacol is probably the closest uh, flavor to a whiskey flavor. Right. So, so gyacol, gyacol is actually at its optimum when the l- concentration of alcohol to water is 27% and which explains why people like whiskey with a splash of water in it or with a cube of ice because it it dilutes the whiskey and it actually increases the flavor as opposed to diluting the flavor um, so 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 that's <laughs> that's the whiskey end of it. Um, it's it's a fascinating subject. Uh, and whiskey's
0: uh, become so so popular again, hasn't it? I mean, big but time, it's a quite a crowded time. market. And I mean, you're, you're, it is, you're an yeah. Irish whiskey now. You're up against a lot of big names there in terms of export markets, etc. How do you feel you do um, in competing well, with some of the w- more well, well-known names? Well,
1: we we are trying to link up with distributors worldwide um, who are appropriate to our size. So in other words, w- we don't look for a giant distributor to take our product and put it somewhere in a storeroom. Um, we're, l- we're looking for sort of medium-sized, small to medium-sized distributors worldwide who will invest in our product and will run with it from the start. So um, we're starting to sell in Vietnam. We're starting to sell in America. We're selling in the European Union at the moment. Um, sell quite a bit to France, to Spain, starting to sell to Germany. We've set up a depot in London, so we're, we're starting to penetrate into the southeast.
0: Um. And when you're selling a product, especially I think in the food and drink market, it's so important to see, uh, feel... The the places that you know, the customers, I suppose, you'd see them, uh, it's all part of the the social media message. Have you been to Vietnam? Have you been to these places? Do you see what the reaction is from the people sampling your delights?
1: Uh, Zoom is a great tool. Yes. Uh, So we've had sort of extensive Zoom meetings in the last two pandemic years. Uh, In the ordinary course of events, yes, we would have been out there, but it wasn't possible. Uh, Would you like get to get out there? Would yeah. you like
0: to go in v- to Vietnam and... Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> <Get> <laughs> drun- get,
1: go to Vietnam and get drunk, yeah.
0: And, and actually sit there and say, here I am with my morning due, and I started it right back in Ross Trevor, in yeah. Gilbrony in Ross Trevor, yeah. and, uh, you know, here it's now in Vietnam. That must make you really proud.
1: Um, yeah. I, I, I never get the chance to think about that, to be quite honest. Um, it's more um, something, to be, something to be done. Yeah. Um, it, it, uh, it it's it's just become part of my life uh, to the extent that it, it, I'm almost thinking about it twenty four seven. Right, and um, you
0: did say you've sort of stepped back yeah, from. Yeah, yeah, ste- I've day. stepped back from did it, but I still to. can't stop thinking about it. It's quite intense, and I can see that it yeah. it is all consuming. And you strike me as someone who has to absolutely get it right. Yeah. Um, if you're doing this, um, h- did Donalogue always want to get into the family business?
1: Well, <laughs> Donald actually trained in housing management and was working in a housing association in Liverpool uh, some years ago. And when I suggested this to him, um, he was quite keen on it. So um, he, yeah, he, he, he bought into it big time. He, he does enjoy it.
0: And what's it like working father-son?
1: yeah uh, we're always arguing uh, you? did you always argue I think anyway? yeah I think we're, I think we're that used to arguing but don't <laughs> be, get bothered about it um, you know arguing's probably not the right word we You're do disagree we do disagree but it's, it's only disagreeing in a constructive way
0: yeah and is it constructive do you are you different people? Or are you very similar
1: yeah're he he's more hands-on than me. I'm probably more academic than he is um, so
0: he's a grafter
1: yeah, he's a grafter
0: and do you need that?
1: You absolutely need it. Um, you, you know, it's, it's like the old saying, a bird never flew in one wing. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't have only one set type of person in a business.
0: So, what would he be doing now? What is a what is a normal day then at Mourn Jew?
1: We are getting uh, a couple of pallets of drink ready to be shipped out to England at the moment. So that's. That came in at sort of fairly short notice, that order. So um, that's what he's getting sorted out this afternoon.
0: So it sounds like you still pretty much know what's going on in there. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) you to. (laughs) You still can't sleep at night. Um, You know, I think you're being very modest here because it is a a huge success story. And it is a family business. And I suppose Northern Ireland and the island of Ireland has a real history too of family business. Um, Is it something that you see even a next generation taking on?
1: Um, I, I can see about 15 years down the road. Um, I can't see beyond that. I am no idea what will happen. Um, I, I can see that um, in, in 15 years' time, we'll have a range of aged products. Uh, you know, aged whiskies, um, that will certainly become upmarket in nature. Um, our, our whiskies at the moment are three years old. Which is the minimum for whiskey? Mm-hmm. Um, there's no particular reason for that three-year limit, except that in the First World War, Lloyd George, who was very, very anti-drink, he was a, a abstinence campaigner. He brought in legislation to ensure that whiskey had to be three years old, and the effect of that was to shut down a lot of small distilleries, which couldn't couldn't handle the finances involved in storing your liquid for three years as opposed to storing it for a year and getting it out on the shelves. So uh, he was quite effective in that, in that whiskey production was restricted and the availability of whiskey for people to drink was it was, was restricted. Um, so we're still stuck with it. It, it, it is what it is. Um, it's not three years. In every part of the world, bourbon is two years. Uh, right. There may be also... Um, climactic reasons for that in that um, a bourbon warehouse sitting in the southern states in America um, is much warmer than a warehouse in Ireland or in the north of Scotland Uh, and the the reactions run quicker to mature the spirit but um, it it still is what it is It's, it's three years and people attribute value to the age of the spirit I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with that analysis but that's the way it is as our spirits get older, they will get more valuable.
0: Okay, and you've also got some new product development underway, even though you're not there day to day. You're quite excited about, uh, well, I'm quite excited <laughs> to read about this, Navy Strength Gin. Yeah. Tell me about Navy Strength Gin.
1: Navy Strength Gin dates back to the days of wooden boats. And in the wooden boats in the different navies around Europe... Should it be the French Navy, the Royal Navy, Portuguese Navy. Space was very limited, and they invariably ended up storing their spirits, their alcohol for drinking, n- right next door to their gunpowder. The problem was that if the gunpowder got got wet from the alcohol, it became useless unless the alcohol was over fifty-seven percent alcohol by volume, and. That meant that the, any alcohol they brought on board, should it be rum, should it be gin, whatever, was always over fifty-seven percent. So
0: were they in any fit state to use the gunpowder after th- having that?
1: Yeah, well, see that th- th- there was a th- there was an admiral, and um, trying to think of his name, he the they called him Old Grog, <laughs> and he brought in this rule that the spirit had to be cut with water before the sailors drank it, and. That name was uh, h- his name became the origin of grog uh, uh, as as a type of drink. Right. So grog is a watered down spirit.
0: But you're bringing out a navy strength gin. We're br-
1: we're bringing a navy strength gin, which is has to certainly have to be treated with respect. I was going uh, to say, and it's, really? yeah, it's, it's it's very robust, but it's you're it's easily capable of being drunk neat, uh, if you really want to go down that road. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't advise you to drink too much of it, and um, it's it's certainly certainly not. Not for the faint hearted. Um, we, we, we do a lot of research on our potchings. And we've carried out work with Queen's University on accelerated maturation techniques for potching. We have a superb drink. It's probably the drink that I'm proudest of. It is a hazelnut potching liqueur. Oh lovely. Uh, delicious. There is nothing like it in any market that I've ever found. The closest would be Frangelico, the uh, Italian liqueur. Uh, And to me, again, I'm biased, but it's a pale, watery imitation of our drink. Wow. So uh, our drink has all the richness of whiskey and potheen. And it's got the very, very strong hazelnut um, flavour from the hazelnut uh, potheen that we make. And we we do that with... uh, Vacuum distillation. W- w- when you do it with conventional distillation, the hazelnut is really oily, so the oil comes over in the distillation, and you end up with this glary mess uh, in your distillation That's not good oil. No, it's no. impossible. Okay. It's, it's, imp- it's, it's unusable. Right. Um, wh- when we make it, we're just dis- we're distilling at such low temperatures that the oil stays behind, and stays stays in the residue, and we get a clean hazelnut distillate over in which is then blended in, into our other pot jeans to, to make the final product. I love the um, sound of that. It's, it's really, really good.
0: Your pot jean brand is called the Pooka. What, what is the Pooka?
1: Well, the Pooka is a famous character from Irish fairy lore. And the story goes that the Pooka was actually an angel, or the Pookas were angels at the time of the fall And some angels sided with God and some angels sided with the devil. And the puka didn't side with either because he didn't know what way it was going to go. So as a punishment for his uh, neutrality, he was cast out, but he wasn't cast out to hell. He was cast out to the world and he appeared uh, from that time in Ireland. The story of the puka is actually a story not unique to Ireland. It actually... Has similar versions down the Atlantic seaboard. So Scandinavian countries had their version of the Puka. um, Scotland had its Puka right down to the Iberian Peninsula. There were stories, they're the same type of story. So uh, obviously (laughs) the story of the Puka sort of spread and became endemic in those different cultures. But the idea about the Puka was that he was sort of, there were bad Puka's and good Puka's. In old Irish cottages, there was a seat put on the right side of the cottage door and there was thornbush thorn bush growing on the left. And that was for the good puka and the bad puka. The bad puka would go to the left side and he wouldn't be welcome. And the good puka would be welcome to the seat on the right side of the cottage door. So when we were looking for a name for our brand, I came across another story about the puka. Now the puka is a shape changer, so in different parts of Ireland he's... Appears as different things. He appears as human, and then he appears as animal, uh, as an animal. The two animals that he normally appears as is as a her or a horse, and there is a tradition called the Pookas Wild Ride, and uh, the Pookas Wild Ride would happen when uh, the f- the Pooka the, the Potching Drinker was going to the Potching Maker, and or, or to the pub in the sixteenth century, whatever it was. And he would have maybe just a little more than he should have had, and he would be coming home fairly well intoxicated. And the puka would grab him, throw him up on his back, take him on this wild journey as a on as a horse, and then leave the victim back where he started, completely dishevelled and (laughs) clueless as to what had happened. (laughs) This is a a true story. (laughs) This is a true story. So, so the puka. He, he was. Uh, if you made a good puka, he'll do you a good turn. If you made a bad oh. puka, he'll do something nasty. Beware and the bad puka. Yeah, beware the bad puka. In in most of Ireland, around um, Sabin, uh, around you know, Halloween, um, shares were left for the puka uh, so that you would get good luck for the rest of the year from from the puka. There you so go. there was just so much history and so much lore in that character of the puka. And the, when we came across the story of the Puka's Wild Ride, we thought we just have to call our potching spirit Puka. What else? And what a brilliant...
0: Yeah, it, you must have just gone, that's it, Eureka, yeah, we've got it.
1: it. Yeah, that was one of those Eureka moments where uh, you said, yeah, there's no other name that we can call this spirit except Puka." Oh, love and it. Th- there's a bar in, in uh, London now, in Wimbledon direction. Um, they sell our products and they actually have made a cocktail, which is quite brilliant. And it's called the Wild Ride <laughs> because because they read my notes on the on, on the subject and they said yeah we're going to use that we're as well. Make that Probably too. It's one of their Be best a great selling. name for a pub as well. Yeah. <laughs>
0: there, we yeah. there we go. You've heard it here. Copyright that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have. We actually <laughs> we got reviewed on a t- the Matt Cooper show on Today mm-hmm. FM. Um, they described it recently uh, it's Christmas in, a, Christmas in a bottle.
0: I was going to say it just sounds yeah. like it might be replacing <laughs> yeah. the other very well-known drink yeah. that a lot of people drink at Christmas. It sounds yeah. perfect for that. Um, you talked there about innovation, you talked about working closely with Queen's and I know there are wonderful scientists here very much involved in helping companies like you develop, innovate, you know, get the next big thing and test I suppose their product first yep. of all in a safe way and make sure all of the claims that you're making actually you know live up to to what you're saying and um, how have queens helped you what's that relationship like how does that work?
1: Que- queens are really good uh, they're really really helpful um, they've run several projects for us um, with with the help of Invest NI um, so one project was on researching uh, accelerated maturation techniques. Um, in, in, in a whiskey cask, y- y- there are seven reactions occurring. Um, there's the reaction between the liquid and the wood, so it, the chemicals come out of the wood, the oak barrel, and start, start reacting with the ethanol. Um, there's the reaction between the al- alcohol and the other products of fermentation, um, which produce a range of chemicals, but they produce them very slowly, hence the prolonged distillation period. Now, we, we can't accelerate the production of whiskey, because three years is three years, nothing's mm-hmm. going to change three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Potching can be in wood for ten weeks, but if we, st- we have found that if we store it under a, a very, very specific conditions, we accelerate the maturation. In the barrel in 10 weeks wow. and and what we produce is a patching which is not what people would conventionally have experienced as patching if they ever experienced patching which is pretty rough ours is like a, a like a light whiskey um, and it has a different sort of flavor set entirely uh, one, one, for instance one of the chemicals is, is actually quite interesting this one of the, one of the chemicals that's produced as a byproduct of fermentation is butyric acid Butyric acid is actually quite popular in American food. It's it, it's a Hershey's chocolate. And Hershey's chocolate, to most of us here in this side of the Atlantic, is pretty disgusting. Uh, mm. And there's a reason for that. Butyric acid smells and tastes like vomit. It's actually what gives vomit this particular <laughs> smell what? and taste. Yeah. <laughs> what but the heck's it doing in Hershey's Yeah, but be, be, because it's That's th- they're just used to it. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, I think Americans seem to like it when they grow up with it and they don't <sighs> like our European chocolate. They're mad. But, but, beti- <laughs> but butyric acid reacts with ethanol to make ethyl ethylbutyrate. And ethylbutyrate tastes and smells like pineapple. So it goes from disgusting to delicious over a period of years. Uh, a- in our potchings, we drive that reaction as fast as we possibly can and get it complete in weeks rather than years. And hence our potching... Is, is not poaching as people know it. People have actually been disappointed with our poaching because it hasn't been that rough spirit that they were expecting. That It, it was something else entirely.
0: You're absolutely <laughs> blowing my mind here, Donal, and I hope you don't give me a test afterwards <laughs> on all of the things that I'm trying to learn and trying to remember and trying to take on. It's a fascinating insight into your world, into your brain <laughs> uh, out of which all of these amazing inventions and ideas come from and I wish you every success with the future of mournned you and indeed um, of the family business and I do hope you you get to step back a little too. The purpose of this podcast is to give advice to people who may have a business idea out there, have no idea where to begin, they're unsure whether it's a risk worth taking what would you say your advice would be or and also if you could give us an insight into the biggest challenge perhaps that you've had to overcome in, in running your own business?
1: Um, biggest challenge, well, y- two questions are answer the biggest yes. question. Yeah, the biggest challenge, the hardest lesson that uh, you can learn in business is that there are good and bad people out there in the business world. I'm not talking about employees now, but all employ- employees need to be good, but... The, the whole circle of acquaintances and contacts that you will develop in business there are good and bad people good people will help you on the road to success and bad people can ruin everything for you and uh, how do you know the difference you you don't it's very hard to know at first instance uh, it's very hard to tell who's good and who's bad but the thing is when the penny drops and you realize somebody's not good for your business you have to bite the bullet and cut your ties and we've come across that in, in our distillery business and um, you it, learn it, the hard way you learn the hard way and um, get rid of the bad people and, and cultivate the good relationships right um, brilliant
0: uh, and what about taking the risk in the first place are you glad you did it
1: uh so far yeah so <laughs> far it's a work in progress but so far i, I mean a- anybody else thinking of starting a business yeah and uh, maybe
0: um maybe any other p- people who want to pursue a career in distilling.
1: Well, if you want to do a career in distilling, don't do what I did, don't go and do accountancy or law, go and do distilling and brewing. Um, The Carlo Institute of Technology is one option, Uh, they'd run degrees in brewing and distilling, and... The other one, the big one, because of the Scottish uh, industry, Scottish distilling industry, is Harriet Watt in, mm, uh, Edinburgh. in, in Edinburgh. Yeah, uh, They run courses, uh, they, they run degrees and p- postgrads in distilling and brewing. And I would say that anybody who is uh, interested should go to those one of those two places. And I would have thought they would have been pretty certain to get a job because um, craft brewing and craft distillation is here to stay. It's, it's not it's it's not going to go away Um, you know might not necessarily be more than due, but there will be somebody there in the future sort of looking for craft distillers and for for that expertise
0: a good profession, a good career to go into
1: absolutely yeah
0: well, it's been, um, honestly, it's been it's been a lesson. It's been an education talking to you today, Donald Farrell. Every day um, is a school day. Oh, I tell you, but that was a really tough and, and science was never really my thing. But I've learned an awful lot, especially the history um, of these wonderful drinks that we see. And, yes, looking forward to seeing the Navy Strength Gin and um, that hazelnut liqueur. Please. The hazelnut
1: liqueur is oh, gorgeous. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely I'm, gorgeous. That's where I'm heading.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. And, everybody, I hope you've enjoyed this edition of The Public.